This is the front page of the Economist newspaper this week. The headline says, Can Iran be stopped? And the smaller headline, which is what I'm really interested in, says, Syria nukes and the rise of Persian power. Now, the reason why this story is prominent is that it has emerged that the Iranian government is probably only about one year away from making an atomic bomb. Yikes. Iran has recently elected a new prime minister from a short list of acceptable candidates. People are trying to figure out if the new prime minister is going to be willing to, to negotiate about this, building this bomb. And behind the scenes, behind the prime minister, is the supreme ruler of Iran, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who is deeply suspicious of the West and exercises extraordinary power. Now just think about that for a moment, would you? A supreme ruler, a nuclear bomb, and Iran's rising influence in an unstable Middle East region. That's heady stuff. I wonder how many miles it is from Iran to here. <laughs> What's the distance these bombs can travel? No wonder the world is nervous of the rise of Persian power, Iranian power. Now, the world was nervous of Persian power 2,500 years ago. It's nearly exactly that time. The Persian Empire had a supreme ruler in those days, too. His name was King Ahasuerus, sometimes known by his Greek name, Xerxes. And the world was nervous of Persian power because Ahasuerus had enormous wealth and military power and a grudge. He led a massive campaign against Greece, who he wanted to destroy, but he was beaten. After a number of blunders, he was forced to withdraw and go back to Persia. Back home, Ahasuerus devoted himself to drinking, partying, sensual indulgence, gigantic construction projects, and fooling around with women, including some of his officers' wives, <coughs> which didn't go down too well. He was eventually assassinated in his bedroom in uh, the 5th century BC. Now the story we read today that Becky read uh, comes from this book in the Bible called Esther. It takes place in the middle of that world of power and money and sex. And the events in chapter 1 of Esther happened the year before Ahasuerus went to Greece. And then chapter 2 picks up without skipping a beat when he comes back. And that explains the rather odd Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done. Which kind of seems a bit abrupt if you've just read chapter 1. How did he forget? Well, the reason is he was off campaigning in Greece for a couple of years and then came back and remembered. And so the story picks up, not mentioning the huge uh, global event that's just happened in Greece, but focusing on this thing that concerns the Jewish people. It's quite interesting. In the middle of swirling torrents of international politics and intrigue, a drama is really being told about the Jewish people, an ethnic minority, a marginalised group. And we're going to see, as we go through this book, how precarious life was for them. Anti-Semitism is just around the corner. And this story about a marginalised ethnic group seems like a minor story, and it didn't make it into the big history books of the time. But in the history of God's people, it is a major event. Because the Jews were threatened with genocide. And it seemed inevitable that their enemies would prevail. Haman, the Hitler of the Old Testament, 
initiated a pogrom that would destroy the Jews through the entire empire. And that would be the end of God's people. And therefore, that would be the end of God's program for saving the world through the Jews. So actually, this is a very big deal. Esther is the story of how an ethnic cleansing was stopped and the tables were turned. A day of tragedy potentially was turned into a day of deliverance. And the foundations of that reversal, of turning the tragedy to deliverance, are laid in this very chapter, chapter 2. But this chapter really is all about God's people living in the real world. I know it seems very alien to us, but I want to show you how this is really about the real world. And therefore it's got much to teach us. It's not straightforward, this chapter. There's tension in it. There's ambiguity. That's the point. This book is in the Bible to show us what it's like to be God's people in the real world. The world that's not clear cut. Where things are murky. And sometimes ambiguous. And sometimes there are no heroes. Now I've been wrestling with this chapter all week. And I've come to the conclusion that part of the purpose of it is to make us think. Not give us all the answers. Of course, preachers like to give all the answers. I'm not going to do it today. And some of us may not be comfortable with that. Why would this chapter make us think and not then give us the answers? Because life in the real world is like that. It's often ambiguous for God's people. Living as a follower of Jesus, you will find that life is not always black and white, is it? When you turn up tomorrow at your workplace or whatever you do on Monday morning, there are many shades of grey. It takes a lot of careful thought, wisdom, prayer, discussion, thinking to be a consistent follower of Jesus Christ. So this chapter is written for us. And the first thing we learn is that you can do the right thing and be treated unfairly. Mordecai does the right thing and he gets nothing. Pick it up at verse 21. We're going to start at the end and then go back. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, when we read that Mordecai was sitting at the gate, what comes into your mind? What do you think he's doing there? What mental image is summoned up? Think he's begging? Busking. <laughs> you hum it and I'll play it. Yeah. I mean, we think he's sitting at the gate, he's probably poor or homeless, you know, and he's just got his cap out. You know, maybe he's got a harmonica. Actually, the king's gate is the place of uh, administrative power. It's the often where the, the equivalent of the offices of the civil service would be. So it's much more likely that Mordecai is working for the king and he's a civil servant. He's in the structure. He's in the administration. He's actually got some influence, which is how he comes to hear about this plot by these two bodyguards. Big Than, maybe he was big, and Teresh. Now, these two guards became angry, it says, and sought to lay hands on the king. And they don't want to lay hands on him to give him a stroke. They want to kill him. And we know from history that that's exactly what did happen a number of years later. And you can understand it. This was a very corrupt boss. But Mordecai goes the extra mile to save his boss's skin. 
The plot is stopped. See what it says, verse 22. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the queen, Esther, and she told the king, in the name of Mordecai, so trying to give him some credit, what happened? The affair was investigated, found to be so. The men were hanged on the gallows for treason. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. It was written down in the civil service minutes, you know, in the small print somewhere. And guess what happened for Mordecai? Nothing. He didn't get anything. He just went back to his desk. And then what happened? To add insult to injury. The very next verse, chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So this guy, who we're going to find out is the enemy of the Jews, gets promotion He's done nothing to deserve it. Meanwhile, the faithful worker, Mordecai, is, is, has not been treated well at all. It's unfair. You ever been passed over in a job for promotion? You ever went for an interview and you didn't get it for a bad reason? You ever been uh, prejudiced against, dis- discriminated against? It's grossly unfair, isn't it? That's what happens here. The king just overlooked it. Now, what this means is that just because you and I are Christians doesn't mean that we'll be spared the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Sometimes life is just plain unfair. You don't always get the credit you deserve, do you? Sometimes people who bribe, lie, cheat, spin and manipulate end up not only getting away with it, but being rewarded. That's life. This is life in the real world. Mordecai does the right thing, and he's overlooked. In the very next verse... The Hitler of the Old Testament gets a promotion. Is it fair? No. And God doesn't do anything about it. Did anyone even notice Mordecai apart from his adopted daughter? Yes. God noticed. The living God. He sees all things. And he ensures ultimate justice. In chapter 2, the good deeds are written down in this book of small print, government records. And then it just all seems to go quiet. Then one night, some time later, quite a bit later, the king can't sleep. Just turn over to chapter 6 for a moment. It's page 494 in the hardbacks. The king can't sleep. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It's probably so boring that he thinks this is going to help him get back to sleep, you know? Oh, just bring out that government book, will you? And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, oh, what honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him probably coughed, shuffled their feet a bit, looked a bit awkward, and said, "Uh, nothing has been done for him, your majesty. And the king said, who's in the court? And, and then it goes on. And this turns the whole story around. You see how it works? the end of chapter 2, Mordecai is totally overlooked. He's there in his office, stirring his tea, wondering where it all went wrong. By the end of chapter 6, he is richly rewarded and it ends up being used in saving God's people. Now this is not some kind of what goes around comes around message. You know, If you get overlooked this year, five years time you're going to get a bonus. It's not like that. It's an assurance that God will deliver his people. So if you're one of God's people, you trust him, 
follow him, love him. Life may be unfair, but he has got your back. Ultimately, you will be delivered from all your troubles one day. And maybe some, someone, some of you need to hear that. You're carrying all these troubles and you think, it's so unfair. Why is it like this? I thought God loved me. I thought he saw me. I thought he, I thought he was there, but he is. His, his ways are greater than our ways. His ways past finding out. But ultimately, God has got your back. Trust him. Especially when you can't see the sense in life. He will keep his promises to you, friend. He will deliver you in time. Now that's Mordecai, right? He does the right thing and he gets nothing. And I think that's pretty clear cut, okay? Mordecai did, did a good thing and he was overlooked, but okay. Now what on earth are we going to make of his adopted daughter, Esther? Esther does the dodgy thing and she becomes queen. What are we to make of her conduct in chapter 2? I want to turn back there if you're still on chapter 6. Now, I just want to back up for a moment to explain why this is all a bit dodgy. And if you're not from the British Isles, dodgy means questionable. Suspects. Let's just think about the essence of being one of God's people, a Jewish person in the Old Testament. God's chosen, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. They were specially loved by God and rescued by God and brought out of Egypt and given a new identity and a new king. And a new way of life. A new law. They were to be God's holy people. The first five books of the Bible. Which are often referred to as the Torah. Are given them as their guidance and teaching. Instruction on who they are and how to live. There's a whole book. Dedicated to showing. That there's a difference between. Clean. And unclean. And it's shown in every area of life. So it's shown in. The way that they dress. Jewish men are not to cut the hair at their side of their beard. They're not to have tattoos. The males are to be circumcised on the eighth day when they're born. It's a distinctive marker. They are even to be distinctive in their diet from the world around. They were not to eat unclean animals. And this is a very, very big deal. Because it shows who they are. It's part of their identity. So God describes what kind of animals are unclean and what kind of animals are clean. So the famous one, of course, is pigs. Pigs are unclean animals. So the Jewish people don't eat pork, bacon, and all that other good stuff. The bottom line underneath all of that, it's not some sort of random thing, and it's not really about hygiene. It's this. Don't be like the nations around. Do not be like them. You are a holy People, different, distinctive, special, pure, separated out. And the clean and the unclean laws underscore all of that. So we thought a bit about diets, but there were other ways they were to be distinctive. Marriage. They were not to marry outside to the other nations around because that would mix them religiously and they'd end up following other gods. But there's only one true God. They were also to observe one day a week as a special day. The Sabbath, Saturday. And on that day to remember, God made the world and he'd saved them. When they were slaves, he'd set them free. So they have a day off work, which slaves never get. That's what it meant to be Jewish. And the Jewish people, to this day, 
thousands of years later, many Jewish people keep those laws. Very deep. It's very profound. God's holy people. Just think about some of the heroes in the Old Testament. Joseph. His brothers behaved uh, awfully. They sold him into slavery. He went down to Egypt. He's there and his boss's wife tries to seduce him. And he says, how could I do this wicked thing? And he runs out of the house. And she cries rape. He ends up in prison. And when he's in prison, he's still faithful to God. And he ends up, through a long story, being promoted to being the prime minister of the country. A hero of faith. You know, he obeyed God. He, he, he didn't sleep with this uh, woman. Just think about Daniel. This is much later. This is in the exile time. Daniel and his friends, Jewish young men, aristocrats probably, very educated, are brought to serve the pagan king. And Daniel says, I'm sorry, we can't eat the king's food. Takes a big risk. So the guy in charge of feeding them says, all right, I'm going to give you a trial, okay? You can have vegetables and water, but if you're looking a bit pasty by the end of so many days, you guys are back on the king's food, okay? So they do. They take the, the risk. They eat only the food that's okay. And they end up looking healthier than all the other guys. There's your five-a-day principle. <laughs> I thought it was five a week, but it turns out it's five a day. <laughs> Fruit and veg. Right, let's move on from that. Then they have to stand up, and, and, and Daniel's known because he prays certain times a day, and he faces Jerusalem. And he's publicly identified as a Jew. And the enemies hate him and they end up getting him thrown in the lion's den. You know the stories. What's it all about? Standing up. Being different. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Now with all of that in mind, what about Esther? Where, is Esther Webb here? No, it's probably a good thing today. What about Esther? You know, there's at least five problems here. Number one, she takes part in Miss Persia. Right? It's Miss World. I don't know if they're bikinis. Uh, but she's basically one of these women who get ogled at by these king's uh, employees. And she ends up being treated as a sex object, taken back to the harem. Now, the harem was a place where these virgins waited on the king's pleasure. And as it said, it's kind of incredible, they were given beauty treatments for a year. It's kind of extraordinary. Cosmetic treatments for a year. That's a lot of foundation. So she's in there. How come she didn't object? Stand up to it. She's going along with it. She, it says that she even concealed her identity. She didn't tell anyone she was Jewish uh, or her kinship. What about the diet? There's no mention of that. She seems to be eating the food that they give her. What about keeping the Sabbath? No mention of it. What about marriage, for goodness sake? She ends up married to the pagan king. At just about the same time that Ezra was kicking off in Jerusalem and saying, get rid of your pagan spouses. Now, you know what? We mustn't be too quick to judge other people's ethical conundrums. Because this author isn't. Because there's another way of looking at it. Okay, she took part in the contest, or she got selected, but maybe she knew what had happened to Queen Vashti. Maybe she was scared. Yes, she kind of hides her identity, but then her adopted father told her to do that, and she obeyed him. 
We don't know what she did about food or the Sabbath. We just don't have the answers here in this text. It doesn't say. Marriage. Well, what choice did she have? You know, she may have hated it. But on the other hand, she may have loved it. She may have liked the fact that she was sleeping with the most powerful man in the world. She may have been a cynical social climber who was completely compromised, saw her chance at the big time and grabbed it, discarding her faith. Or she might be an example of faith under pressure. Do you know what? There are at least three ways you can read this. I told you I wasn't going to give the answers today. One, she's completely compromised, an example of a faithless Jew. And the whole story is just then how great God is, because even when people are that bad, he still rescues them. Another view is that she's caught in the middle. She's kind of struggling. You know? Certain things she, do are good. she does are good. She's very wise in the way she deals with people. But on the other hand, she sort of goes along with it too much. Or a third view is that she's a hero. And after wrestling with this text all week, I concluded that I don't know the answer. Because the author doesn't give us the answer. He leaves us to ask the questions. Now, what are we to make of that? Firstly, Esther is not here as an example. She's not put here as an example for young Christian women to copy. Can you imagine using this text in the kids club to teach my 10-year-old daughter how to live in the real world? (laughs) Those kids club leaders would be out of here. Now, we know there are plenty of occasions where it's very clear how to live as a follower of Jesus. A Christian woman who dresses like the world, short skirt, revealing top, dressing to attract sexual attention, who goes to nightclubs, spends the night flirting, is just not being consistent with her profession to follow Jesus. The Christian man whose language, spending habits and use of the internet are the same as the world around him is simply not being consistent with his profession. That is inconsistent Christianity. There are loads of areas in life where it's really clear-cut how to live as one of God's children, aren't there? There are loads of things. But we're not talking about those things today. We're talking about the complicated stuff. And that's where the chapter puts us. Situations in the real world that are complex and There's no black and white. It's very grey. It requires deep thought, serious thought, if we're going to be a disciple. I'm going to give two examples, uh, and they are so sensitive, I'm going to have to to take them off the recording before it goes on the internet, because this could get us into trouble. Two two examples, okay? Real examples. Listen, Jesus says, if you want to follow him, he will send you into the world. He doesn't send us into a monastery or a nunnery. He sends us right into the world into the playground, into the office. But he says, you mustn't be of the world. You've got to be distinctive. Here's how Jesus prayed. I'm going to just do one cross-reference today. It's from John 17. If you want to turn the pages to revive yourself with the breeze, it's John 17, page 1089 in the hardback. 1089. This is wonderful. This is the Lord Jesus Praying for us. What a thing to read. Jesus' high priestly prayer, it's called. Verse 11, Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. You, you and me, we're in the world. 
And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he says there, Jesus is no longer in the world, physically, but we are. Then in verse 14, here's what he says. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, or by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctifying means making pure and setting apart as special. Jesus says, Praise for us, Christians. He's praying for you and he's saying, Father, make Seb and Gemma and Matt and Krista. Make them holy in the truth, by the truth. As they're in the world where I've sent them. But they're not of the world. You see what Jesus is saying? You're going into the world, guys, but you've got to be holy. You're in the world, but not of it. But at the same time, he says how we're going to be distinctive. Verse 17 again. Sanctify them in or by the truth. Your word is truth. So having the Bible, the scriptures breathed out. Not dictated, but given by God through human authors. That's the truth of God. And we take all of the 66 books and all the principles and all the teaching that comes from them. And we apply it to life. And that is a lifelong process. And Esther, believe it or not, is part of that truth. And the point of this chapter is that sometimes it's very difficult to know what's the right thing to do. Simple. But we have to try and find the right thing to do. I hope that's helpful to you. Mordecai does the right thing and he gets overlooked. Esther does the dodgy thing and she becomes queen. The next two points are really brief. God does the hidden thing and he saves his people. You see, Esther and Mordecai finish the chapter in very different positions. One of them is on the royal throne. She's got the crown. She's looking fantastic. The other one is down there at the king's gate, stirring his tea, wondering where it all went wrong. And at the end of the chapter, it's really hard to see sense of why it's like that. And they're probably wondering, why am I in this place? And is God here? And what is he doing? Why did it turn out like this? What's going on? And you know, life is like that. You spend most of your life not really knowing what God is doing behind the scenes, don't you? Is it meaningless? Why am I in this job? Why can't I get a job? What's God doing? Well, here's how these two situations panned out in the rest of the book. Mordecai's action ends up with him being rewarded and Haman overthrown. Esther's marriage means that she gets access to the king at the critical moment. And she can intervene for the Jews very bravely and save God's people from destruction. So these two are basically saviours. The events of chapter 2, as weird and murky and difficult as it all seems, are actually essential for the future of the Jewish people. And from that people comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. But none of it is clear by the end of this chapter, right? By the end of the chapter, we're still in the fog. 
God is hidden. He's hidden, but he does, he's not absent, and he saves his people. But, you know, it doesn't end there, or the Bible doesn't end there. Because, you know, this isn't the last time that someone gets taken and brought before a godless king in the Bible. Nor is it the last time there's a gross miscarriage of justice. Nor is it the last time that God is hidden at an excruciating moment. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus. He does the Father's will and he gets the cross. If ever there was an apparently unfair moment in human history, this is it. There's only one person in history who shows complete integrity in all of his dealings. The way that Jesus Christ relates to women. The way that Jesus Christ deals with children. The way he relates to the powerful. The way he deals with the oppressed. The outsiders, the vulnerable. There's only really one true hero in the whole of world history. There's only one truly exemplary human being. and His name is Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. And for being the loyal son who does the father's will, what does he get? The cross. Where was God then? Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God seemed hidden and it went dark. Was God absent? God was present. God was present actually in the judgment poured out on the son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The father didn't turn his face away. He was looking right at him. And in judgment, he punished your sin and mine. And you know what? God was present because God was on the cross. It's a great mystery of the Christian belief. God was the father judging and the son submitting. And through that apparent miscarriage of justice, the greatest turnaround of all was effected, the greatest deliverance, the reconciliation of all things under Christ. When God seemed most hidden, he was most present in saving power, delivering power, to turn the tables and to turn the, the, the dark night of the cross, the, tr the tr potential tragedy, into joy. So remember that this week, when you are faced with life in the real world where it's all very grey. God is king, he is good, he knows your lot, he keeps his promises, and when he seems most absent, he is most present. So let's move out into his world, in the world, with confidence that we can be in it, and not of it. And let's be committed to be made holy by the truth, sanctified by the truth, because his word is true. Let's pray, friends. Gracious Lord, we are aware that uh, there are times when it seems like um, the whole of our culture and, and the whole of our lives are um, set up to make it difficult for us to follow Jesus. At times when it seems easy, but actually it isn't. And we're faced with difficult decisions day by day. We thank you for this strange and difficult chapter that reminds us that you are present even when you seem hidden and that shows us that things are not going to be easy and straightforward and we won't just turn the crank and life will be great. I pray for those here who are really struggling with uh, ethical or 
personal issues at the moment. And I ask, Father, that you would send your spirit to them in a special way now. And you'd open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. That uh, when he did your will, he got on the cross and he did it for them. Lord, we praise you for this church, for your blessings to us. And we ask, go with us now for the rest of this day in your name. Amen.